one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see. 
We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation. will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is giving his final rally call to the troops here in chapter 8. I don't think there's any bigger conclusion than this in all of the book of Romans. This is, as Charles Spurgeon said, the, the final note to the song. The first note is no condemnation. And this final note to this glorious song in chapter 8 is no separation. And so I wonder if you're here this morning and you're a doubter. In your heart and your mind, you wonder if God knew this about me, surely He wouldn't let me into the kingdom. If God knew this about me, maybe He does, then I doubt He could possibly love me. I don't know if God could really forgive me of what I have done. 
wonder if you doubt and you think to yourself, will I make it through trials if they come? Can I make it through persecution? What about dangerous situations? Can I make it through depressed and anxious seasons? Will I make it through my grieving? I just don't know. Will I make it through my trauma? Will I make it through this season of doubting where it seems like I wake up and I tell myself, God, I know you're there, but I can't feel you. I don't see you. And it doesn't seem like you're listening to me. Where are you right now? This passage reassures us of this truth that I believe Paul is going to argue for us. This passage answers the question of the doubter. This passage helps us when we are being shot at with fiery arrows. This passage shows us just how big God really is. What Paul is going to be arguing in this passage is simply this. Because we are God's children, God is for us. There's no better news than that. Because we are God's children, God is for us. And today we will see Paul's worshipful response to Verses 26 through 30. This is Paul's worshipful response to the idea or theology that he just said in verses 26 through 30. So we need a little context here and we need to go back to verses 26 through 30. Do you remember last week at all? If not, here let me briefly explain what last week looked like. We looked at verses 26 through 30 and we said that God's got us. He's got us by sending His Spirit to intercede for us when we don't know what to pray. The Spirit groans on our behalf and prays perfect prayers for us. And then we saw that it's God who saves us. God's got us because He foreknew he predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified this great chain of salvation. God has got us through the interceding of the Holy Spirit and the fact that He saves us. It's God who does the saving. And so Paul, at the end here, goes into this worshipful response. What shall we say to these things? What things, Paul? The fact that God has got a tight grip on us as His adopted children. Paul brings up the greatness of salvation in verse 30. And immediately is led into this worshipful, praiseful, which probably isn't even a word, that's okay, response. So here's just a quick question as we get started. There are some people who tote around 
predestination and God's election as a badge of honor and are, quite frankly, arrogant jerks. But Paul's predestination and election leads him to worshipfully praise God. Not only praise God, but we'll see that he praises God's love. This characteristic that we cannot be separated from God. And so we will see in this first part four important questions. This first point, we'll look at the four questions that are in verses 31 through 34, and then we'll take a look at then the last question. So verses 31 through 34, and then verses 35 through the end. So we come to this first question. And Paul asks a question. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's an interesting question that Paul asks, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but there could be quite literally hundreds of people who are against us. Can't there be? I've had friends dismiss me of my faith, some of you may say. I've had family members and friends disown me. I remember when I was lifeguarding and I was talking to a, a student at Boys. Um, it, he was in the, the hot tub and he was from India and he was talking about how because he became a Christian, his family back home in the Middle East disowned him, cut him off from everything. What do you mean, Paul, who can be against us? Aren't his family against him? What about the people who are persecuting Christians? What about being passed up on promotions because of your faith? Right, the list could go on. So we come to this and Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we go, wait a second, Paul, you must be new here. So what's Paul's point right here? Well, we need to keep on reading to understand it a little bit better. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right here helps us understand the above verse a little bit better. Or verse 31 a little bit better. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If God is for us, we could say, then who can bring any charge against us? Yes, Paul is going to say in a little bit, you can be persecuted. Death will come knocking at your door. Tribulation and trials are sure to come. But if God is for you, then who can charge you? This is where we need to remember. Do you do you remember how this whole chapter starts off? There is therefore now no condemnation. If God is for you, who can condemn you? Who? If it's God that's for you, who can condemn you? 
Is there any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No. No, there's not. And Paul has made this clear. Why, though? Why? Because God did not spare his own son. So what does this mean? What Paul is saying right here is that there's not one single person on this planet who can charge you as guilty in God's sight if you are a part of the elect. If you are God's adopted child, nobody here on this earth can charge you with condemnation. Nobody. Not a single person. How can this be? Because I don't know about you, but there are, are things that are stacked up in my life. There's sin in my life that makes a pretty good case that I should be condemned. This is the fallen nature of man. Is that there is a case that's built up against us. And so how can this be that Nobody can bring any charge against us. Because this world doesn't justify us. And this is right now what we're seeing in our culture, is it not? We look for justification constantly in this world. Finding groups and people to belong to, and yet we only feel like we can't keep up. But it's God who justifies. The only one. The only one who can bring charges against you and I are God. God is the only one who can bring charges against us. Because God is just. And on the same hand, God is justifier. This is why Paul starts out this letter by telling us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet he reminds us again at the end here the same thing. Who is to condemn you? If you are in Christ Jesus, who will condemn you? Who? And yet, don't we live in a world where it seems like it is constant condemnation? You're not giving to the puppy dog charity when those sad commercials come on. But what Paul is saying right here is that since God justifies you, there is not one person that will condemn you. Satan can't condemn you. You, yourself, can't condemn you. Your family can't condemn you. Your friends can't condemn you. The government can't. Animals can't. Plants can't. Water can't. Whatever. Nobody, nothing, nada, zippo can condemn you. No charges can be brought against you because God justifies it. How does God justify? Christ is the one who died, Paul says. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand, who is indeed interceding for us at this very moment. You have an advocate. You have somebody who is interceding on your behalf right now. 
whose blood cries out, justified, reconciled, called, adopted. Paul tells us what this looks like earlier in this chapter. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus Christ was condemned in our place. He faced the total wrath of God. If you're not a a, a believer, a believer or, or a Christian here, let me just encourage you to think about these things. God created us all in His image and likeness. He created us to be stewards and to work the earth. He created us perfectly, without spot or blemish. And yet we fell. We wanted to be like God. Instead of submitting to God, we wanted to be like God. And because of that, sin entered the world. And because sin enters the world, condemnation and guilt reign. And God's just charge is that we are guilty sinners in His sight. And yet Christ then comes to be condemned for us, to reconcile us back to himself so that we could say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What Christ does is take every ounce of condemnation away from you and places it on himself so that you could be an adopted child of God, to be an heir of the kingdom, an heir of God and with Christ. And so the only question then moving forward is what's your response? You can't sit on the fence. It's one or the other. It's I trust and believe or I don't want anything to do with that. Take my condemnation or I will keep my condemnation. There's no in-between. God's salvation plan is final. And look, I know that some of us just love to be prideful and say, but God could never forgive me of that sin. I'm just too despicable for God to ever forgive me. Look at how much of a sinner I am. We sometimes wear that as a badge of honor. We think that there is some type of sin that God can't forgive us of. That's a very arrogant and prideful thing. Because there is not one sin that God can't forgive that Jesus hasn't died for. That's why at this very moment, Christ is also interceding for us on our behalf. Reminding God of his payment, of the purchase of buying back his people. I mean, think about it. Right now, we have two intercessors. We have the Holy Spirit who cries out on our behalf when we don't know what to pray, and we have Christ who intercedes for us 
whose blood cries out forgiveness. This salvation is full. It's done. It's final. And yet in our hearts sometimes, we ask ourselves and wonder, just maybe, if God just knew this about me, then he wouldn't have saved me. Jesus would look at me and say, my death could never possibly save you. Or we look to the future and we say, if I mess up big time, then God will be so embarrassed of me that when I call out to him and say, hey God, here I am, he'll turn his back and put his head down. He will ignore me. And yet, this is not our Savior. This is not our Savior who leaves people high and dry. This is not our God. Once you are His child, it is final. And so, if you here this morning are doubting and questioning, how do we combat this? Well, I think that it's pretty straightforward. Paul is asking us a list of questions, is he not? So what a better thing to do than to sit down with God, open up his word, read through this, and start answering these questions for ourselves. If God is forced, who can bring a charge against us? And the scriptures tell us nobody can. No judge can. Satan can. I can't. And then we read to the next one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up, Will he not graciously give us all things? If God was willing to give his only begotten son, will he not also give me eternal salvation? And then we go on to the next one. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? Who can do that? Look, I know that we are Christians, or most of us, but we have to be Christians that think. We can't be Christians that just Come each Sunday and sit and listen to a message and then leave. We must think through these things. And we must think through them again and again. And we must think through them again and again and again. We must be Christians who think. This is what Paul is asking us to do. He's asking us to think. He's causing us to analyze and meditate on what these words say what these questions mean. So we have to think, we must, we must sit down and answer these questions. So if you are a doubter, if you're down and out, if you're depressed, or if you are going through a trial of some sort, I would encourage you, sit down with God and answer Paul's questions. And then go ahead and read those answers out loud to yourself. And then do it about 10, 20, or 100 more times. So now we need to then look at this second question, the second portion. We see these first few questions, and I've encouraged us to sit down and think about them. But Paul here asks then another big question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ.
if it's God who justifies us. If it's God who justifies us and not ourselves. If Jesus has died for us. Then who can separate us from the love of God? It's amazing. John actually tells us that God first loved us. Can you believe that? Before you were even alive, God had already loved you. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul goes on to give us a few illustrations here. Shall tribulation? What about distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul's asking all of these rhetorical questions already knowing the answer to affliction. Can affliction separate us from the love of God? When your health starts to go and you're diagnosed with cancer, will that separate you from the love of God? When difficulty comes and you just wake up every morning and you ask yourself, I don't know if I can keep on going. Can I? Will that separate us from the love of God? When persecution comes and when you're being targeted for your faith, will that separate me from God's love? What about famine when I don't know what I'm going to eat or I haven't eaten in three days? Has that separated me from the love of God? What happens when nakedness comes? Shame and exposure to your sin. Will that separate me from the love of God? What about danger? I don't know what's to come from this situation. Will that separate me from the love of God? What happens when I'm laying on my deathbed, taking my final breaths? Will that separate me from the love of God? This is real life, people. God is, or Paul is asking us very real and tangible experiences that happen. These are experiences that, that these Christians, when Paul is writing this letter, could have said, I know that brother who experienced persecution. I know that sister who was in that dangerous area. They went through that. And then Paul, to put the icing on the cake, says this. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a pretty strange verse to quote here. This is Psalm 44. Why in the world, Paul, would you put this right here, right? We're, we're talking about not being separated from God's love, and then all of a sudden he's talking about us being like sheep being led to be slaughtered. What is he talking about here? Well, I think very simply what Paul is just trying to emphasize and communicate is that Christians are going to suffer. It happened back in the Psalms. It still was happening during Paul's time. And we still experience suffering right now. It's the same. Suffering still comes. And yet, Listen to how Paul finishes 
this chapter. No. 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 Let me just read verse uh, 35 again. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, danger, or sword separate us from the love of God? And Paul says, no. No. But not only no, Paul says no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here is our long-awaited answer to these questions that Paul has been giving us. We are conquerors. Not only conquerors, more than conquerors. But here's where we need to be careful. We are not conquerors in ourselves. We haven't brought ourselves through trial or tribulation or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword. It's not us. We, I, Max, you are not the conqueror. We are conquerors through him who loved us. <laughs> we are conquerors through God who loved us. We're not conquerors because of our own merit. We're not conquerors because of how impressive we are. We're not conquerors because we're smart and witty. We're not conquerors because of our abilities. We're not conquerors because we dress for success. We are not conquerors in ourselves. We are conquerors through Christ alone because of his love. Because of his love. And so then Paul goes on to say, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> when we start reading that, verse 38, we could also say this, that Paul is saying, I am certain. Or we could even say that Paul is saying, I am persuaded that none of these things will ever be able to separate the child of God from the love of God. What great comfort is this for those who are suffering, for those who are doubting, what a great reminder for those who are walking the plains of normality. What great comfort to the downcast Christian. Paul says right here that he is absolutely certain or persuaded that death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of, Christ, of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're fearful right now, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you're overwhelmed, if you're worried, if you're grieving, if you're suffering, if you're in danger or persecution or facing sword, Paul is saying that he is absolutely persuaded 100% that nothing, 
nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God. So if you do not know, this is the first Sunday of Advent. And what Advent is, it's a church tradition where each week represents a different attribute. And this week's is hope. I couldn't help while I was meditating on this this morning, just realizing what great hope this passage brings to all of us weary children who's beat up and run down from the past year, from the past two years, from the past five years. Look, if you are here with us this morning and you're not a believer or you're just on the fence or whatever it may be, let me just tell you this. This is for everybody in this room. You will not find a more dedicated and faithful love than God's love. You won't. There is nothing here on this earth that is more faithful and steadfast in love than God. So here's my encouragement. Let us put our hope in Him. No matter where we are at, let us put our hope in this steadfast, faithful love. Because what Paul is saying here is that nothing will separate us from this love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is active, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is true. It is reliable. And it tells us this morning that nothing is able to separate us from your love. So we thank you for that. Allow us to trust in that. When trials of various kinds come, let us put our hope in your steadfast and faithful love. In Jesus' name.